When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a man on a quest searching for the truth because of some horrific murderers out there that shouldn't be doing what he's doing. I love that. I love that it's the oddball or the person with the class without the classical background of police or hard-hitting investigative newspaper training. He didn't go to the police academy or even we're assuming he didn't go to journalism school. No. He's good at puzzles. He's well-read. He is fascinated by something he can't solve and does his best to do so. It kind of reminds me in a weird way of vertigo. Yes. Both are portraits of obsession, control, single-mindedness, and of course, the men who made these movies. They say that vertigo is the film that directors respond to most, like Scorsese and De Palma. And I would say the same is true for Zodiac and Fincher. I am stubborn and obsessive by nature in my work and passions. I like getting information, getting to the bottom of things, but I do find I do get tunnel vision. I don't even realize or recognize what's out there when I'm working on something and super focused. I'm sure you might be the same way. I, I don't know why you would ever claim that I'm tunnel vision <laughs> about things. Blake, never. No. <laughs> There's a danger in losing yourself as Jimmy Stewart does in Vertigo or Jake Gyllenhaal does here. But unlike me, forgetting about everyday things like lunch, getting the mail, taking out the trash, <laughs> returning phone calls, like that just happens when I'm hyper-focused. This <laughs> could destroy their lives or get them killed. It's a totally different stakes game, but but I do understand and I, I, I get the inclination. I think I also really respond to control as a goal. Boy, I'm going to sound really obsessive when this airs. <laughs> but it's both good and bad. For me, it's mainly just, though, control over my own life, health, and body. I've had chronic pain since I was 11. I have scoliosis, had a bunch of surgeries. And I started developing worsening symptoms of a rare, unknown systemic disorder about a decade ago. It was around the time I turned 30 and it was like, fuck you, 30. <laughs> but, but in constantly confusing and scaring doctors who didn't know like what was going wrong with me or how to fix it, they were just sort of blindly throwing darts like, let's try this treatment or that treatment. The thing that I wanted more than anything was to be able to control it. And I see this in Graysmith. My serial killer, so to speak, is not the Zodiac, but it is my health. And I'm the oddball like Graysmith who, who's like, well, the authorities or the doctors aren't doing their job, so fuck it. I want to catch it and stop this thing in its tracks. I was finally diagnosed with an extremely rare genetic disorder about a month ago, actually. So it took me nearly to the age of 40 to find out what it was, and it's even responsible for like the spine issues I had when I was a kid. So I had to be dogged and diligent in my quest. I respond <laughs> to that in Avery and Graysmith's quest, because there's that great line late into the movie where Chloe Seveny asks him, why do you need to do this? And Hall replies, because nobody else will. And I relate to that very hard. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is the 18th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Virgo Part 2. Our introduction today was award-winning author, film critic, and host of the terrific and insightful Watch With Jen podcast, my friend, Jen Johans. 
Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a massive help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives and our gushing love of all things physical media. I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with a weekly rum and rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac sessions, now 40 plus episodes, are there for as little as a dollar a month. We've also got the links to our merchandise with artwork from the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me today for a rocky ride on Houseboat Avery ah, Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt, Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and LA Times, and the co-host of the Miami Nice podcast, Katie Walsh, host of the Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year With Women and Noir Vember hashtags, Mariah Gates, film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope, author of the essential movie books, The Coen Brothers, This Book Really Ties the Films Together, and the recently released Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, Adam Naiman. Former long-running editor of Time Out New York, editor, critic, and writer for hire with bylines at the New York Times, Sight and Sound, Empire, a Zodiac true believer, Joshua Rothkopf. Writer and book critic, Bill Ryan. Author of Fierce Bitches, Peckerwood. Crime fiction aficionado and author of the noir literature and culture blog, Hard Boiled Wonderland, Jedediah Ayers. And newcomers to Zodiac Chronicle. Film critic for the Los Angeles Times and NPR's Fresh Air. Former chief film critic at Variety, Justin Chang. But I remember very vividly being like in the Los Angeles Film Critics Association meeting that year and being one of like only two or three people who was voting for Zodiac in every category, <laughs> like across the board. Best picture, Fincher, you know, screenplay. I mean, hello, how does this, you know, this is like one of the best screenplays uh, of any Hollywood movie in the past 20 years. Best-selling author, screenwriter and journalist, and host and writer behind our definitive series on the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats called Josie and the Podcats, the one and only Maria Lewis. My favourite Fincher film by a goddamn mile and then some. It is slow and patient and terrifying and thrilling and the profoundly talented artist that has helped define the look of not only the seminal independent film publication, Brightwall Darkroom, but also One Heat Minute Productions. You've already heard her name at the beginning and ending of every Zodiac Chronicle podcast, the delightful Brianna Ashby. One of those movies where every time you watch it, you kind of can't believe what you're watching because it's just so... Perfect. It's kind of one of those things that's just a masterclass in everything. Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film reunites Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith with Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery. Graysmith wants to rekindle the fire of the beginning of the case and deflect the monumental task onto the man he so reveres, his former mentor, Avery. Graysmith doesn't actually realise, but he's set off on a path. He's spurred on by Paul's barbs and energised by Mark Ruffalo's Tosky and he finds that he's the perfect man for this job. Graysmith has set off on this journey with no grasp of the destination. This episode's theme is suitably Mystery Road. We left off after quite a tragic scene. Tosky being forced to endure a screening of Dirty Harry, where Art granted a false catharsis. Here's Jedi Ayers recapping the agony of that screening. It, it popped to me that the, the little introduction shot of, of the, uh, the Dirty Harry screening, it's, it's for the police. Yes, it's, it's a it's a close and and they're all there like it's a packed house of apparently not just cops because because uh, Grace Smith's there too but uh, uh, it's for the police 
they're there to wrap up, put a neat little bow on this thing that uh, most of them are moving on. They're like, I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this movie. It's great. Uh, I'm now officially done with this chapter. And uh, uh, Ruffalo is, is getting up to, to leave because he's not. He's one of the guys who are not done with this. And he walks out. There's that great shot of him walking underneath the Dirty Harry uh, stand. There's this giant, towering cardboard stand of Dirty Harry with his gun, and it's pointing right at Toski. Right, walks right under it. This giant, you know, dick pointing at his head, and uh, <laughs> and it's just, and he just goes down the stairs, you know, and he's just kind of sinking lower and lower. And, um, yeah, everybody else comes out of the movie and they're like, hey, wasn't that great? I'm glad we all experienced the, the you know, this kind of cathartic release of uh, getting through that period we all went through. You know, when there, when there's a, um, it's like all the, the people celebrating, um, you know, COVID's over now. Uh, doctors and nurses and teachers are very aware that it's not but you know a lot of people are real happy to get on and just uh, enjoy the the it's over and um yeah let's get back on and, with it let's and, get back yeah on let's get lives. let's get back on with it we all went through this thing together and uh and here's a you know here's a great great way that it it's it's brought us all together and now we can move on before we get to the scene proper Here's Justin Chang, Mariah Gates, Maria Lewis, and Brianna Ashby talking about the arc of Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery in Zodiac, the influences, and just the pleasures of everything we've experienced so far as a direct contrast to the power and the importance and the pathos of this final extended Houseboat Avery moment. I, I, I just think about the contrast between those scenes where this and, and Paul Avery too it's like he is such you th when you think about those some of those quintessential Robert Downey Jr. roles oh, I mean this is surely one of them just the I mean it's so funny too you mentioned the pre-Marvel of it all this was 2007 Iron Man came out the next year in 2008 so it really does feel like I mean I, I you know love Robert Downey Jr. and I am I am very much looking forward to him in other roles post-Marvel, you know, but because it does feel like that just sort of sucked him into its vortex. And even though he is so much the face of that series in a lot of ways, but now it's the, this kind of the, the dry wit, the wisecracking humor that he gets so well, it, it sort of feels like it's corporatized in a way. And this, this was like a glimpse of that before he became that face of Marvel. I feel like you can see him begin to work out the kinks of what Tony Stark is, who he is, what he represents with Paul Avery. Yes. Which is a weird thing to say because Paul Avery obviously being a real person and Tony Stark being a fictional character, but both having been in the public consciousness for quite a long period of time in one way or the other. And both characters have an inevitable bleed between who Robert Downey is IRL that's part of what makes those performances so great is because you believe that nobody else could play those roles the yeah. way he plays those roles it's an only him thing you could definitely for sure cast somebody else in those parts but are they giving the same thing that Danny's giving no no way in hell that kind of like flair and pizzazz and the meanness you said like tony stark's a fucking mean character too he's a dog like seriously <laughs> he's the fucking worst and that's part of his journey too right it's like he has to get to this point where it's like maybe i shouldn't be a cop his first appearance on screen is just i mean robert Downey jr is just magnetic period yes but you see him on screen and he's like dressed like this mod dandy in a newsroom <laughs> full of dowdy, drab, tweed and clad men. And he's wearing this beautiful vest and it has this silk chartreuse back to it. And he has a silk scarf around his neck. And he's basically 
a human peacock <laughs> strutting around this place and he's treated that way too yes. and uh it's he's flamboyant and they you know, it becomes very obvious very quickly that he's the playboy of the group and he's definitely presented that way wardrobe wise you know the next few times you see him he still has the scarf and he has the necklaces and by comparison all the men around him basically don't exist yes he's like the nexus of this universe and everything revolves around him at least he thinks so and everyone seems to kind of capitulate to that ego because he delivers the product especially for someone like me who tends to dress a little bit flamboyantly and uh please never stop we love it solemnly <laughs> swear i couldn't if i wanted um, but i think also it's that kind of thing can be a facade it's a projection yeah it's a it's a power play honestly like he knows what he looks like. He knows what he looks good in. He knows he's good at his job. And he's got the ego to put them all together and just power through everybody. Yeah. And do what he wants and get away with all of it. I went into watching the movie this time around, paying attention to Avery in particular and the way his character plays out and kind of unwinds. and. The way they did it visually through his wardrobe, I was really fascinated by because as he and Robert get more into this case and because he starts out, Avery starts out and Robert does too, as like, this just makes sensational news. He's like a true crime podcaster. Like <laughs> he just wants the bylines. He wants the readership. He wants all the glory for what's happening. He doesn't care about the victims. He doesn't care about the puzzles, he doesn't actually care. But when he starts to care and kind of dive in, he he ditches this like too cool for school mod kind of get up and then moves into more of like a hate Ashbury counterculture style. <laughs> yes. Um, so my favorite piece of clothing that he wears in the entire movie that I wish desperately I could get my hands on is uh, it's I think they're in a bar it's not the aqua valva scene it's another time and it's this like really beautiful but really wildly embroidered jacket yes it's like part suede and you don't know what's going on it's got this nature scene on it i really wish we could see more of it because it looks like just an incredible piece of clothing um but i i thought it was really interesting that he starts kind of embracing you know you think of the counterculture movement and you get all of this like visuals from woodstock or whatever peace love understanding but at the same time there's this severe distrust of authority so he's getting more confident and kind of idealistic about his mission and in and his part of this thing but at the same time he's telling Dave he says it's like hey bullet it's been a year and a half you gonna catch this fucking guy or not <laughs> so like he's completely losing faith at least and face value and the cops that he was supposedly working with or helping while at the same time kind of like growing into his own belief and like part of it is just that his ego is just absolutely through the roof all the time but I, I think about the contrast between robert downey jr's in early scenes and midway scenes as paul avery where he is just so full of life he is like the snappiest dresser in, oh. the, or appears to be, from what I remember, like in when we in the scenes of the Chronicle, beautiful, you know, vest the, the green and vest and the and the waistcoat, kind of, yeah, 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 stunning, totally stands out, stunning. You know, the costumes. I mean, it's funny because this is a movie where you know the costumes are so the, the costumes and the production design are so good in this film, but you, they're very they're largely unobtrusive, and you don't you know they these are just the definition of a movie whose, whose aesthetic choices don't call attention to themselves, but. You remember how how good Robert Downey, how good Paul <laughs> Avery looks in those early scenes. 
but I always think of the shiny waistcoats with him. Mm. And in particular where he turns around and you see his lovely cake, but just the way the waistcoats are cinched at the back, like the way the, the belt buckle is pulled in is such a specific choice and, you know, really testament to costume department and capturing who that person was and the kind of like eccentricities of his character and the flamboyantness and everything. But it's also just such a downy thing. And it's just like, you could see Tony Stark in a version of that, like even their costume choices. And I hate like to be so obvious about like doing the Tony Stark comparison, but they're so close together. And there really is intersection there that I think is is really fascinating um, because it does feel in a wee way like Paul Avery, he's, he's workshopping how he is going to turn Tony Stark into more than just another fucking billionaire white boy a la Bruce Wayne. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. Sorry, there's one outfit in between that those two stages, which I actually find hilarious. <laughs> so when he goes to meet his informant, he's creeping around there, like, <laughs> which is in just the most ridiculous way possible. He's also wearing a field coat and a patrol cap. Like he's in the army in the shit, like creeping around this building. Like how he's like he's taken himself so seriously at that point. And then he gets that direct letter and then everything goes to hell. And then we see the jeans. And then we see the jeans. And then it's bad news. <laughs> It's such a sad scene and such a bitter scene too, mm. um, because I mean it, it's you know you this is a movie that is about the psychological decline and even destruction of many many men and and women too. We just don't spend as much time with them, and they're usually to, you know toiling away behind the scenes, uh, with the exception of Chloe Sevigny as as Robert Graysmith's wife, um, but. You just see how that 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 decline and that destruction affects everyone differently. And with Avery, I can't remember what when is the last scene we see him in before this, but it has obviously been some years because he's no longer he's now working at the Sacramento Bee. It, he's gone from the Chronicle to the Bee. Yeah, it's the, the it, last um, the last scene pre-Sacramento Bee on the houseboat is yeah. his infamous tete a tete as he uh, says yes, it with that right. beautiful pronunciation. And that's he right. leaves with a bottle of pills shaking in his pocket <laughs> at like right. 10 in the morning. Yeah, I, I mean, I imagine with the kind of personality he had and the job he was doing that he clearly kept literally everyone at arm's length. So yes. for someone to actually have the audacity <laughs> to ask after his mental status <laughs> is probably pretty novel and welcome in a way yes no he uh there's none of the playfulness you know like watching men that are you know fond of each other try to interact in loving ways they're so stunted most of the time <laughs> that you know a compliment or um any kind of genuine concern is met with a simultaneous punch on the arm just so you know that this is a very masculine conversation so i think that he had that kind of level of of um respect and playfulness with robert in the beginning and his ego is just completely shattered mm. and all of that just gave way to bitterness and that's all that was left. Hall's character asks him if he's okay. And he's like, no, but thank you for asking. And it's it's another moment that's really dark. Like he is, he is fucked up. And yet you have to laugh because it's the line delivery is so funny. The way he says, thanks for asking. Um, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing right now. His like life's in the toilet. He's sleeping <laughs> in his car. <laughs> but 
um, I think all the characters are able to bring that pathos and and that humor, and I think that is what makes a lot of Fincher's films a lot more um, not realistic, but um, bring a level of of truth to what he does in a way that I you know like he he tells them in a really heightened way, but the humanity of his characters are always there. Yeah. Because they're able to react in ways that feel truly real. And now, onto the scene. Joining me to unpack this scene, Brianna Ashby, Justin Chang, and the writer of Zodiac, James Vanderbilt. Did they intend for the houseboat itself to be a metaphor? Because that's the way I read it. Like, if you're a person who's uh, trying to escape the world, but you're not ready to completely cut ties, where do you go? The man's living on a boat. He's one, one, I don't, can you unmoor a houseboat? (laughs) I mean, I assume they can be moved. Yeah. But he's literally just one step away from being literally unmoored and just drifting out into nothingness. We sort of, and the other thing about that scene that I love, which was pure Fincher, was I remember Fincher going, "He should have Pong," and be obsessed with it. And I was like, "That's a great idea." And so just having that kind of in the background going on, he's not even playing with it; he just likes having it on, you know. Yes. Um, just sort of adds to that kind of you know general sort of sadness. And Graysmith, I think, also is a, is a guy who has hero worship for a lot. He worships Paul Avery, right? Yeah. He doesn't, and, he and walks out of that house, yeah. yeah, he doesn't see that that's sad. You know what I mean? He doesn't <laughs> see, you know, when Duffy Jennings says the thing about going to work for the Sacramento Bee, Graysmith kind of doesn't get it, you know? Like he's sort of like, everyone else thinks that Avery flamed out, you know? And Graysmith's still walking around saying, you know, the man who sat at that desk is a great man. So. I think when he goes to the, the house, but he's so sort of single-minded that he doesn't see all the other stuff that's kind of going around. Permission to come aboard. It's right there. I know you got shoes on. This is perfect right here. That's the one. Hey. Seen that? Mesmerizing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My own kids would kill me for one of those. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you? Fantastic. I mean... Admittedly, the bee ain't exactly the crown, but fucking right. Do you want a drink? I don't have anything blue, but I got. Don't worry about that. Don't don't worry about it. No bother at all. Nobody comes by from the old days. Hitting on the bathrobe that he's wearing on the houseboat. Yes. I I started thinking about cinematic parallels about uh, men avoiding confrontations with reality by enshrining themselves in bathrobes <laughs> and uh, the Big Lebowski and Wonder Boys immediately came oh, to mind. Wow. And what pedigree. It's, it's such a great symbol of like, I need to cocoon myself in safety and domesticity and also not have to care about literally anything. Where's been going? Oh, you know, strikes and gutters, ups and downs. I'm sure I've got you. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Gotta get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. So I definitely wasn't surprised that the bathrobe was the... <laughs> the weapon of, of choice, choice. weapon of choice, wardrobe what of choice. he was wearing in his filthy houseboat with Pong just playing incessantly in the background. Like that is a man that just wanted to avoid every single 
aspect of reality as long as humanly possible. Don't worry about that. Don't don't worry about it. No bother at all. Nobody comes by from the old days. To your health. Mine. Mostly mine. So, um... What's new? I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. And he's already, you know, he's already, you know, the the consummate maverick and the mischief maker and just tweaking every single authority or establishment person in sight. But he, um, but he's just so full of life. And so to see him in this kind of, you know, in the houseboat, you know, just, I don't have to describe it, just, you know, just completely gone to seed. There's a resonance there too, of course, from what, you know, because of, you know, Downey's own personal life and his experiences. He's talked about, you know, in his his own experiences of, of of substance abuse and addiction. You know, it's like there's it's not something that the movie draws attention to. It's just something that plays in my mind. There's just a le- just another little resonant thing. But um, and you see him there, and you know, it's when he opens the door and it's like, you know, and, and Grace Smith comes in, and it's you know, there's they haven't seen each other in years, and you you think there, there actually is to me there's this initial spark of affection. Yes. That between them, of course, and, and that and that Avery is is moved and touched that this young kid who used to he used to you know say like you know you're looming you know the, the, the kind of the office <laughs> the office nuisance who used to kind of kick around but there was a real this real kind of you know avuncular brotherly kind of affection between them and they did some work together and they shot ideas around and you see that but then you see that when you know when Graysmith is just trying to open all that back up again years later. And you also see the toll of like, um, you know, Avery having, you know, done so much reporting on the case and, you know, which we get just some small sense of, but also having been, you know, <laughs> targeted or threatened by the Zodiac at a certain point and, you know, kind of in, in his sight, as close to being in his sights as anyone in this story has been. Um, and you think about just the toll that that's perhaps taken on him of that glory and then what happens when nothing comes of it and it's like it is and when you think about you know oh his addiction his there's his substance addiction and then there's but then there's also the addiction that this case has has had on everyone who's become sucked into it and his is just kind of the most destructive or openly overtly destructive manifestation of that addiction right i think his repeated assertion that he's a marked man was uh obviously literal I, I, you know, I think he saw the writing on the wall in many different ways. He was obviously smart as hell. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Oh, he knew what was coming. Yeah. He knew where he fit in and knew where he didn't. And as soon as, you know, he, his conductor's baton stopped <laughs> making the orchestra go, he was out. I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. It's not new. I've been thinking that if you put all the information together, maybe you could jog something loose. And then I was thinking that nobody knows the case better than you. Yeah, and you know all the players and you, you have all the files. Lost them. You lost them? Or, or I tossed them, I don't know, I moved onto a boat. You know that we work in the daily business, right? As in today. 
What do you think we were doing back then? Do you know that more people die in the East Bay commute every three months than that idiot ever killed? He offed a few citizens, he wrote a few letters, and he faded into footnote. It's just real, and then you see, as Graysmith comes in, he just, it, the scene turns so corrosive and so bitter because he's like, you know, just can't get over it. And then he's the one who has that great speech, of course, about, which is true. And the funniest thing watching this and rewatching the scene was the point where it's like, I found myself so in sympathy and agreeing with everything Avery's saying. <laughs> yes. um, when he says, when he says like, first off, yeah, what are you doing bothering me, kid? You think I want to think about this shit right now? It's like, <laughs> seriously, I mean, and yeah, and you know, I, I love Gyllenhaal's performance as, as Graysmith in this movie, but it's like, you know, and he's obviously, he becomes the protagonist and he absolutely becomes the hero, but you realize, yeah, this is like, this is also a portion of it's a very unhealthily, you know, obviously an, a very unhealthy obsession that, destroys relationships and and you know um in his life uh and and so it's like it's actually you're completely kind of on avery it depends how you watch the scene when i was watching it a few times i was just like i found myself completely on avery's side to the point where like my perspective seemed to shift a little bit toward his i think where you're coming from justin and this is where i've come <laughs> from now is there's a few more ha gray hairs on my head and in my beard and <laughs> when i hear him say when I hear him take away, and I think you put it so perfectly, he has such this, like, there is something about people who are charming that even when they're being mean, like, they, they just, I don't know how they do it, but they just soar off the hard edges of the, the barb. Mm -hmm. It's just got this cheeky half grin that you just want to hug them rather than slap them in the face. And he has that in spades. It's his entire personality. And it just, it just, reverberates like a tuning fork in this movie bouncing off people it's so wonderful <laughs> but right in this scene he takes all of that away and it is really hard straight there is or it's all edges it's and it's incisive and it's like a scalpel like a surgeon am i being unkind that question mm -hmm. am i being unkind uh, and yeah the more i watch it and the more mileage that i have let's say in the nicest possible way <laughs> myself watching it, it is, um, i'm like He's not being unkind, and I get it. No. And and sometimes it is for this. It is for the rabid, young, obsessive person to take the reins of that thing. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe you know all of the substance abuse takes away all of that, any kind of potential encouragement, and it just gives him yeah. the, the engine with with you know with that scalpel. Like you you all you did is hover. I wrote this story. Yeah. People die oh, on the yeah. freeway every every day. Mm -hmm. And am I being unkind? Have I said anything that's not honest? And you're like, there is a thing called brutal honesty, and this is the same. It is just brutally honest. It is, and all of that, you know, and you, and just like and you, you stole things out of the waste paper basket. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's just saying you think about that, it's like, oh yeah, he did. I mean, we don't really maybe we see a little bit, I can't remember, but even though I've just seen the movie, but it's like it really shows you the kind of the less savory side of, of mm. Graysmith's behavior. And it's that, I, I do think that that is, that is one of the crucial speeches of the movie when he's, exactly what you said, Blake, about um, the fact that, you know, this this idiot, you know, off to a few people, <laughs> whatever, and, and, and wrote a few letters and that was it. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It's four years ago, let it fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk, you stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You went to the library. But there is this really kind of beautiful shot where he is, you know, sitting in his filthy bathrobe and his filthy houseboat where the, you know, it's kind of a cloudy day, but the light that's coming in through, well, the like screened doors, windows that are mostly closed is pretty warm. But then he sits down on the couch and when he starts um, trying to talk to Robert about his book proposal and he's trying to kind of find that playfulness that we were talking about he's completely bathed in this almost like 
holy mm. glow, but it's very cold. It's this harsh light coming down on him. And I thought that that was such a smart choice because it's like, here, please, you know, obviously he's the character on the shot that you're going to be paying attention to, but it's like, a, it was a really beautiful indication that what he was saying was not really what he was saying. Like there was a light being cast on on uh, what was coming out of his mouth that required a little more thought and a little more attention than, you know, you could give it because you were used to blowing off the musings of a slightly unhinged man, just like <laughs> everyone did throughout his career, throughout the movie. I just thought it was kind of a really lovely, subtle thing that they did there. And that's the other thing too, is because, I mean, it goes to this fact that like, you know, when we think about this, we think of like the Zodiac, some criminal mastermind. And really he was just like, just a, the master troll. I mean, he was just trolling <laughs> these people. He was trolling the Chronicle and and and, and the other newspapers and 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 the police, the San Francisco Police Department, and and the other police departments. And it's just like he just yeah, and and just the, the degree to which you know claiming credit for murders he probably didn't commit and all of this. It's like just you know, like be, we we ascribe so much almost like just evil genius to this guy who really was, uh, I can't believe, this is such a, it, it's kind of a terrible thing to say. I, I don't think I'm the first person to say this, but just, I think it was referred to, I don't know if it was in Graceman's book, it's, oh, probably not, um, but so, somebody referred to him as like, it's like, oh, he was actually kind of an underachiever as serial killers go, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, and it's like, that is the truth, but but because, and this is why, you know, what, what the movie says about, about the media and how the media turn something into and, and inflates something into something so much bigger than it even is um which of course this movie is just is is all about but when he really puts it into that cold stark perspective but i think it tells us something and it interrogates something about why we care why we are fascinated of course because we, of course we are more fascinated by this than we are by the other you know just random pointless deaths that occur whether through just crimes of passion or just freak accidents whatever they are um, but of course we gravitate toward this and it, this is almost, I think maybe one of the points, the closest the movie comes to interrogating itself perhaps, and, and sort of asking, you know, because why, um, I mean, I think the movie actually is, you know, doing that throughout, but it, it really does ask, you know, why, why do we find this so fascinating? And, and of course the fact that there are no answers, no definitive hundred percent answers is, is so obviously a part of that i mean because if we had those answers of course the story itself would be less compelling we i mean we worked on that scene a, a, a lot and a great deal and it was always sort of structurally about this is going to be the thing that launches graceman and yes. and i think like i love the idea that avery's really happy to see him at first yes and then realizes He's just there to use me. He's just there to talk about his old Zodiac shit again. He's not, he's not here as a friend. He's telling me I should, he's telling me I should go write a book, like, yeah. you know, to service his interests. And so I think he feels, you know, dr dramatically what we were shooting for is, you know, he feels kind of like, what are you doing here, man? Like, fuck you. Like, yes. and also, you know, that that he has always sort of in the, in, in the filmic version, he's always been the guy to sort of say, let's cool down with the Zodiac hero worship a little bit. Like he's not Wiley e. Coyote super genius. And so that's where you get to the, you know, the line about, you know, the, the amount of people who have been killed in the East Bay commute over three months than this guy killed. Yes. Um, and we sort of like the idea that it's, it's almost like um, tough love to Grace Smith in a way where he's saying, yeah. you know, if this is important, do something about it. You know, you think everyone else, you know, should be doing something about it. You do something about it. And that's kind of the kick in the ass that, that Gray Smith needs to kind of go and sort of take the, you know, move into sort of his, his movement of the movie. That panache, he was yeah. trying to be zippy and quick. And, and I, it, he seemed to get angrier the more he just realized that he couldn't connect with yeah. that. 
But yeah, just everything about Downey in this scene, um, and it's not the last time we see him, because of course we later see him later, kind of when um, when Graysmith is on TV and he kind of even talks about, and there's there's this little hint of that affection still remains. He said, "Yep, you made good, kid. You did. You know, you did something with it. You know, you did take. You know, you did take the baton and run with it." But it's just in this scene, he's so like even just the physical details of it. You know, he's wearing this bathrobe, this ratty robe, and his legs are sticking out, and he's like <laughs> he's sitting cross-legged in this really, it's really, really unflattering, unattractive way. And it's just like uh, really just the opposite of of um, this amazing, you know, really colorful, brilliant um, figure that he was before. And they even reference, you know, the fact that like, you know, when he said, I think he makes a pass reference, oh, I don't have any of the blue stuff, you know, a reference to one, you know, the, the, the blue uh, cocktails that they were drinking. Aquavelvas. Aquavelvas, exactly. And, and, and he pour, he, it's set in the morning still and he's pouring him a stiff drink. <laughs> and then exactly. and he pours it into a really, what looks like a dirty glass. A disgusting and disgusting glass. And carries the bottle. And, and Grace was looking at it, I'm like, I don't really want to, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I know. And, um, but yeah, just there are these, like, these callbacks in a way, mm -hmm. a little bit to, to, to prior moments. And, and you just feel that tremendous weight that has descended on everyone. You feel that passage of time. How this movie compresses time. It's so interesting because I always forget, you know, and I always rediscover when I watch it. Oh my God. Oh yeah. This, oh yeah. I forget this movie, of course, is taking place over, drawn out over a decade and more, you know, actually more than that, but just these leaps forward and, you know, you, in the three hours or so, nearly three hours that it takes to watch it, you do go on this extraordinary journey. It, it's just so funny because there are times when, oh, even just the way it's structured, because you feel, there are moments when it's just like, oh, mere hours pass, you know, because you're so absorbed in the investigation and you're so with it and there's this tremendous momentum. And then you feel those moments when, nope, the trail just goes cold and mm -hmm. the agony of the seven years. And there are these, you know, seven years later, whatever, four years later, and it's like, you know, this is a movie convention, right? I mean, this is a, it's a very conventional thing in movies to say that the four years later, but, and so then I was like, oh, you know, but in <laughs> this movie, you actually feel that. And it's very ominous the way those pauses happen. And, you know, and then of course there are times when he's, you know, when he's showing the, the, the construction of the building, that, that you, which is another very nifty way of, of sort of showing the passage of time. But for the most part, it is just these sort of very stark leaps forward. And so it's all—it's also a shock when you see Avery again because it's the—it's the first time you've seen him since yes, since he's walked out of the Chronicle Building, and it's just—he's—he's um, just completely changed, or he's already been on his way, but you know he really is has fall has plummeted. It's really—it's such a quiet catastrophe. Like it just really—I think it reveals a lot about the heart or what I think is at the heart of the movie and it, you know, the kind of corrosiveness of obsession. Like yes. You just, uh, just this dark, dank little boat is just uh, the scene of like, just a cataclysm. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. Four years ago, let it fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk, you stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You went to the library. I'm sorry I bothered you. It's not the conversation that makes you realize that this is indeed going to be the seminal moment that pushes Graysmith on for the rest of the film. It's actually just before he enters his car. The rain picks up. He looks over to houseboat Avery for one last glance. And it's in that glance he relinquishes his former mentor, his idol, once and for all. And he goes home. Hey, hi. Hi. 
you been? The library. As he goes home, the luminous beauty of Chloe Savigny blooms despite a comfortable cardigan, two practical braids, and the weight of a likely long day of being the primary caregiver for the Graysmith family. A toasty comforter packed crib now occupies the lounge room so she can keep a close eye on the baby and work by lamplight while she's waiting for Robert. After Robert reveals where he's been and exits the room, there's a slow push in with the camera that coincides with a deep breath. David Shire's score swells. The brick-sized tome, the code breakers, catches her sideways glance. She's seen this tunnel vision before. to another, Dave Toski sits with a stern face as a chevron appears, October 11, 1977, San Francisco, California, the corner of Washington and Cherry. Happy birthday, Bill. Eight years and this nightmare rolls on. One baton has already passed, Avery to Graysmith, and now before they ever meet properly, Toski to Graysmith. Avery lives a life of denial, abandoning the story that defined his life and career. One final tether keeping him to this world. Toski has no choice. He visits this shrine of what if. His presence is like an atheist's prayer. Here's Joshua Rothkopf on Shire's strangled trumpet and how we know who Toski is. And the only way the film is going to to rise during those two hours of fall is just pure filmmaking chops. And and I think that's partly why Fincher wants to make this movie. Yes, he has a personal connection to the material growing up in Marin County um, and remembering those curfews himself. But I think it's also because he knows, do you remember that shot in the film where you see um, Ruffalo on a crime scene and he turns around and he looks down the street Mm-hmm. And it's so weird about the way it's lit. Do you remember what I'm talking about? He's standing. Yeah. He's, he's, and he's, he's, he's standing on on the corner of Washington and Cherry, and he walks part. He walks down. He walks down past the cars, and he kind of looks out into the. And he turns the, around the, and the, yeah, and the, and it's like there's there's some kind of processing with the light or something. And there's some and the, the the music is you know swelling on some very nauseating sounding chord. And it's sort of like those moments are the reason why he made that film because yes. he knew that it would just be a like it would be pure craft it would be pure movie making style that could carry this thing yes and 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 those moments it's so funny there's that david shire moment and that that nauseating trumpet note is like tosky's theme and yeah. it has such a kinship to some of the chinatown score that it's like in those moments, that's where the craft is. And it's just, just everything about every- It's totally David Shire. And it's like the strangled trumpet. Oh. It's like the opposite <laughs> trumpet. It's sort of like, this is this is the strangled, cause he's not bullet. He's no. not gonna catch the guy. I mean, Never. it's, and it's, God, it's like the idea that a movie this cynical could even be made is just- <laughs> Hi. Hi. Uh, we met at the movies once. You're busted by magic. I'm Robert Graysmith. I work at the Chronicle. I was wondering if I could buy you lunch. Sure, why not? So you're a friend of Paul Avery? Call it osmosis, call it pure luck. 
but tantalizing one epicurial Dave Tosky to a lunch to ask him questions about Zodiac is the best possible way to get him there. The correspondences are beautiful between Fincher films. The guy in the pizza parlor is a friend from the Bureau. Who's stinky man? Same for years. The FBI has been up into the library system keeping records. Mm-hmm. Assessing fines. Monitoring reading habits. Look at Certain books are flagged. Books on, say, nuclear weapons and mind counts. Anyone who checks out a flag book has his library records fed into the FBI's computers from then on. Wait, wait, wait. How is this legal? Oh, it's about legal. Only these terms don't apply. Oh. You, you can't use the information directly. It's just a useful guide. See, it might sound silly, but you can't get a library card without a, an ID in the current phone book. See? So they run a list. Precisely. If you want to know who's reading Purgatory and Paradise Lost and Helter Skelter, the FBI's computers will tell us. Could give us a name. Could. Could get a name of some college kid writing a term paper on 20th century crime. At least you're out of the office. Sure, why not? So you're a friend of Paul Avery's? He's actually the reason I'm here. Um, I wanted to ask you about Zodiac. Well, I appreciate the interest, but we don't discuss open cases. Well, what's going on with it day to day? We're actively pursuing all leads. And you're the only one on it, right? Mr. Braysmith, Zodiac hasn't written in three years. You know how many murders we've had in San Francisco since then? No. Over 200. It's a lot of dead people and grieving families that need our help. So nobody cares? Excuse me? I care. Okay, can I show you something? I've been doing research on uh, the first cipher. Everything an amateur would need to create it to be found in these books. Now, I started thinking that if you can track these books, then maybe you can track the man. So, I remember you thought that uh, Zodiac was military, so I went to every base library, and I got a list of every person who's ever checked out these books, and that's when I found this. Missing. It means they were stolen. So almost every book on ciphers was stolen from the Presidio Library. And the Oakland Army Terminal Library. Somebody didn't want a record of ever having checked out these books. Who are you again? I just want to help. I can't allow you to help. I can't discuss the case with you. I can't give you information, and I certainly couldn't tell you to go see Ken Narlow in Napa. N-A-R-L-O-W. Ruffalo's like a bullfighter to begin with. And instead of a big red cape, he's deflecting every Graysmith question with the corner of a sandwich. It's not until the moment of the library book research the Tosky realizes he may have an angle. This unassuming bookworm may have an ability to shake something loose. Here's Bill Ryan on Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, Adam Naiman on the strength and susceptibility of Zodiac, and the final word of this episode with Katie Walsh. It's kind of it has an interesting structure the movie as far as the lead because theor, uh, I guess technically there's three leads although Gyllenhaal's the lead. It starts off as Avery and then also Grace Smith and then it goes to uh, I think I have this wrong no no then it goes to Tosky Avery and then Grace Smith and then Grace Smith Tosky. Yes, that's, that's probably not exactly right, but it's something like that. And it's very interesting the way characters fall in and out of it and come back. And I'll tell you, I think David Fincher 
is talking out of his ass recently when he was bad. I don't know what, what, why he was compelled to throw Hall under the bus recently when he was promoting Mank. I think he's great. And I'm a big fan of Hall in general. But I think he's terrific. Because he's such... I mean, he's not naturalistic the way, obviously, Ruffalo and, and Coteus and, and Edwards are. But he is like a middle ground. If, if Avery, if Downey is on the other end, he would be in the middle of those. Well, yeah, it does, it does suggest uh, a kind of susceptibility, but also a kind of strength. Because, I mean, what you see in the Paul Avery character is that his life his life just falls apart. Yes. And it's not like he has this to sustain him. His life falls apart and it's apart. And mm-hmm. Toski, his life almost falls apart and he kind of pulls out, but his job actually permits him in a way, or not permits him, his job disobliges him to follow it too far because cops aren't the way they are in the movies. Yeah. You can't just actually throw your badge in the river and be like, I'm going to go get this guy. I mean, <laughs> you have to follow protocol. And as a cop, he follows it as far as he possibly can i mean you're right that gray smith kind of has those obsessive tendencies but i mean again we're drawing a distinction between a movie that would suggest that because of these tendencies he's capable of the same no. violence which i don't think is it's more the way that the brain works mm. fincher is a filmmaker who's so i think it's temperamental for him i think it comes naturally to him it doesn't always make for great movies by the way but he's interested in the way thinking works it's not so much a dramatist's interest in motivation as he's just fascinated by processing yes you know how are people looking at the world around them i mean fight club is like a movie quite apart from everything else that it's about we're not about we're saying that's not saying it has this first person narration that's basically like here's every inch of the world as i see it and i'm thinking (laughs) through every inch of what i see you have access to interiority but it's not an emotional interiority it's a taxonomical interiority it's just like this is this this is this this was what i think of this and you end up sharing the headspace of his characters yes right there's lots of ways to do that i mean david lynch does that to you but you don't know what anyone's thinking you're just seeing things the way that they're seeing them and you're feeling it i think with fincher perception and thinking are not divorced from feeling but they're they're privileged in a different way yes and I mean, Zodiac, you were constantly getting a sense of what people are thinking because half the movie is people being like, here's my hypothesis. Here's my hunch. Here's what I'm thinking. Did you think of that? Could that be what that is? And it's such a fine line between procedural genre cliche, like an episode of CSI. Yes. And compelling drama. And then another line between compelling drama and something that feels metaphysical and, you know, it might be a question of talking ourselves into it a bit, because in a lot of ways, Stefan is a conventional, studio-financed American yeah. film made to make money. You know, it's got big stars in it. It's not perfect. There's some scenes in it that don't work. But I'm pretty convinced that scenes of guys in rooms talking in this movie are something else. Yeah. They are about and they access something else. And it's why I'll keep rewatching it. I don't rewatch a lot of movies as much as I've rewatched Zodiac over the years. And it also sort of justifies the obsessiveness of the investigators and of the film and of the people who can't stop thinking about this case because you're like, yeah, this was a ho- these were horrible, horrible things that happened, and someone should figure out who did this. And yeah. and the you know creeping up on kids in a lake in an executioner hoodie outfit is just something that you don't want to ever imagine could ever happen. And it did happen. And that's, I think, why Gray Smith is like, and, the, and you know, obviously the, the threats against um, the little kitties bouncing off the school buses. But, um, but I think that's what, like when something that like just sort of rends the fabric of like society and what you know to be safe and okay like what we know to be safe and okay in America is the 4th of July is um you know going to a, a park getting in a cab like or or you know or the way that we sort of inherently have to trust each other you know in the Ioni Sky scene when she has to sort of put her trust in this man to talk to her about her tire and 
you know, obviously it's like a very gendered thing and like social roles and things like that. But, um, you know, it's like all of these people are just doing, they're putting trust in other people in, in the world and they're not being rewarded for that trust at all. They're being punished for that trust. But it, it does sort of rend at what we believe society is or can be. And so that's why you understand why these people get so obsessed. That concludes the 18th episode of Zodiac Chronicle Virgo Part 2. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, and they're going to be coming thick and fast in the coming weeks, and a few coming up really, really soon. They are linked uh, in our show notes, uh, as are the rest of the One Heat Minute Productions podcasts. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas, the Duff. Thank you, sir. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amyreed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time. Good bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.